If you have your Bibles again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 568. If you're a guest with us, we began a new series last Sunday working through a section of the Psalms. We're going to be spending our time in this book this summer. Over the last three or four years, this book of the Bible has been a constant companion and friend to me, and I pray through this series that uh, it will spark your affection and your love for the Psalms and that you'll spend more time in this wonderful book. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 2, and I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2. And this is what the Word of God says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Although this second psalm has no title, Peter and John in Acts 4.25 ascribe its authorship to David. And in this psalm, David continues the contrast between the righteous and the wicked that began in Psalm 1. While the godly of Psalm 1 delight in God's law, the rebellious of Psalm 2 defy God's law. The way of sinners in Psalm 1 now becomes an unfolding of the wrong path and its consequences leading to a cosmic revolt of the nations against God and against his anointed. On the other hand, the righteous man of Psalm 1 is now explicitly seen to be God's very Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude saying, Blessed is the man, and Psalm 2 ends with another beatitude saying, Blessed are all. And these bookends between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 tell us that these two psalms are meant to be read together and that these two psalms serve as the doorway to the entire Psalter. And though Psalm 1 is never quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is quoted or alluded to at least 18 times more than any other psalm. And according to the New Testament, Psalm 2 is a prophecy psalm that looks ahead to a future time in which The promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will appear 
on the stage of human history to rule and to reign for all eternity. And thus, at the very outset of the book, we have one psalm focusing on the way of the righteous and another psalm focusing on the victory of the Lord's anointed, God's very Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, over all of the wicked in the world. Psalm 2 portrays the ongoing rebellion of a lost world against God and its Son. This worldwide rebellion against God is in reality a revolt against the reign of God's Son over all of the earth. But as the psalmist reminds us clearly in this psalm, all such attempts at opposing God and His Son will falter and fail. As a result, this psalm reminds us that no matter how much the nations rage, no matter how much the nations rebel, no matter how much the nations resist God's kingdom, the Lord has firmly established His Son over all. And He invites everyone to come and embrace His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, now, before it's too late, and His wrath is unleashed over the whole earth. This psalm is a very simple psalm. It's a very simple psalm to follow. It's divided into four even parts. And in these four parts, the psalmist draws our gaze and attention to the heavens. And if you'll read and study and listen to this psalm carefully, it will give you great insight into what's happening in the world around us. And it'll give you encouragement and hope. So notice these four sections with me. And the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 3 is the rebellion against God. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These first three verses of this psalm describe sinful humanity crying out in utter defiance against God. And in overwhelming astonishment of this rebellion, the psalmist begins this psalm with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now he is not asking this question to get an answer. He is asking this question because he is utterly dumbfounded by the reaction of the world against God and his anointed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The anarchy that is addressed here is a global uprising involving deep-seated hatred from raging nations and vain plots from all kinds of people. And the word plot here in verse 1 is very interesting. It is the same word that is used in Psalm 1 verse 2 to translate the word meditate. And just as in Psalm 1 where the word meditate refers to an audible whispering or murmuring, here in Psalm 2 the word plot means the same thing. In Psalm 1, the righteous or the godly, they murmur and they meditate and they whisper and read over the word of God. But here in Psalm 2, the wicked and the ungodly, they whisper and they murmur and they gather together. 
not to focus on God's word, but to focus on their rebellion against God and his word. And you'll notice how the psalmist describes their plots in verse number one. They're vain, they're empty, they're senseless, they're futile. It refers to the foolish plan of sinful man to oppose God and to attempt to overthrow the sovereign God of the universe and his control over the universe. And the psalmist is giving us quite a contrast here in verse 1. Instead of rejoicing in the blessings of God, the nations of the earth and the people of those nations are rebelling against God. They're rebelling against his rules. They're rebelling against his leadership and his lordship over their lives. And he builds on this in verse 2 as David declares that the kings of the earth and the rulers lead this resistance against the Lord and against his anointed. And notice how he describes their rebellion in verse number two. They set themselves against God. What does that mean? They set themselves against God. It literally can be translated, they make themselves ready for war. The world is at constant warfare against God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It literally means that the world stands up in protest and opposition and makes it stand against the Creator of the world. The psalmist tells us in verse 2 that the kings of the earth and the rulers, they decide that they've had enough of Christianity. And they take their stand against it by opposing the Lord and His anointed. And dear friends, that is exactly what is happening around us. The world has had enough of Christ. The world has had enough of Christianity. And they've set themselves in global opposition against God and His people and His kingdom. Christopher Ashe and his commentary on the Psalms is extremely helpful in helping us understand exactly what the psalmist is teaching us about these kings of the earth and these rulers. And this is what he writes. The words kings and rulers are broader than just heads of governments. They include all human beings insofar as we have power or can exert influence. Listen carefully to what he says. Media moguls movie directors and producers, news channel anchors, editors, bloggers, celebrities, and all those categorized as influence come under this umbrella. Anyone who can make a difference in the world, and that is pretty much everyone who is alive, is included in this description, end quote. It's a war from the world against God. And you could be sitting in this room this morning and listen to my commentary on these verses and the quote that I just read, and you could be inwardly and outwardly, though you're awfully quiet this morning, saying, Amen, that's right, Pastor, you're telling us the truth. And the whole time you could be sitting there in opposition in your life against God and His Word and what He is doing, and you're just as guilty as the people that the psalmist is referring to. You don't get an exclusion clause because you're in church. 
You can be in church and be in opposition to God and His Son and the things of His kingdom. In the old days, we would call that hypocrite. Pointing your finger at all of the cultural demise while you're harboring sin in your own life. This is the warning here. Opposing God and his son and the things of his kingdom. And you'll notice in verse 2 that this is a strategic, careful opposition. Look at what the text says. These rulers, these leaders, they take counsel together. It literally means that they gather by appointment. They set a fixed time to come together and plot and scheme how they're going to overthrow the work of God in the world and overthrow Christianity. Dale Ralph Davis says, This is what it looks like when the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers in Psalm 1 goes international. And he's absolutely right. And this psalmist here in verses 1 and 2 and 3, he is describing the very story of human history. From the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 to the days of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 to the arrest and trials and beatings and condemnation and crucifixion of Christ in the New Testament and to today in the persecution of Christians all around the globe the history of humanity is a story of rebellion against God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not living in anything new, friends. We're just seeing it lived out in an escalated, quicker fashion. And ultimately, this revolt against God and His Son will reach its climax in the last days as the book of Revelation describes in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 19 when all the kings and the rulers and the leaders of the earth will stand up in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and he will come on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and give complete and utter victory over the rebellion. That's why the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. It's vain. It's empty. They could spend their time in better ways, is what the Bible is saying. And you'll notice in verse 3, David describes what defiant humanity declares in their rebellion. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Represented, they're represented here as speaking with one voice. All of the world in its hostility towards God is coming together in a unified voice. Listen to what the psalmist is describing, friends. The whole world can't agree on anything except for one thing, and that is to get rid of Jesus Christ and his followers. And they're in complete and utter unity for that task. And the picture that the psalmist is describing in verse 3 is that of a stubborn, rebellious animal that's trying to break the cords that are fastened to the yoke around him. And this is a complete picture of sin. Sin is a rebellion and a repudiation of God's rule in favor of your own rule. 
It's a rejection of God's will in favor of your own will. It is rising up and standing before God and saying, Your son will not reign over me. That is sin. And that is what is being described in verse 3. The world is hostile with God. Rulers and the ruled alike seek to escape the demands of God on their lives. This world longs for a world where the Bible has no influence over the culture. This world longs for all of the biblical principles that have been founded for governments and for living in a stable society for years to be destroyed and removed. This world longs for the days of the judges where the Bible says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what this world is longing for in opposition to God. And here's the deceitfulness of sin, friends. The world in its desire to be released from the influence of God and His Word and the things of His kingdom in a desire to be set free, they actually become like the fool in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 5 that says, little do they know it, they're being ensnared in the cords of their own sin. They're longing for freedom. And the more they reject God, the more they reject Christ, the more they reject His Word, the more they reject the things of His kingdom, the more and more confined they become and they're trapped in their very own sin. And in their foolishness, they don't realize that that's not freedom. That true freedom comes when there's restraint, when there's guardrails, when there's a clear direction for your life in living it in a way that pleases God and honors God and obeys God. A picture of the life of the Psalm 1 man or woman. And you could find yourself here this morning just like these leaders and these people of the nations that are being described in Psalm 2. Saying inwardly, God's word will have no influence over my life. The Lord Jesus Christ is not my Lord. I want him to be my Savior. I want fire insurance so that I don't go to hell, but I don't want to obey him. I don't want to have his restraints and his influence and his guidance and his direction in my life. That's Psalm 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And would you notice again, friends, what the text says? It's vain. It's vain and empty. To live like that and to set yourself in opposition to God. Psalm 2 was written in a time much like ours. Morally corrupt. Politically unstable. But friends, there is a thread of confidence that runs through this psalm. Threats loom. Evil leaders rise. But the psalmist reminds us no plot, no plan devised by sinful man against God and his people will ultimately succeed. And my question for you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe what Psalm 2, 1 through 3 says? 
Or are you so concerned about the fear that is being thrown at you that you've forgotten there is a sovereign God on the throne in heaven? Have you allowed the events of the world, the news, maybe your friends, maybe your family, maybe your own anxiety to rob you of your joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith in God and His promises for the future? Have you? Or do you believe what this psalm says? That it's vain. That nothing, nothing, no one can take away the hope that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we not only see the rebellion against God, we also see the response of God the Father in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I love these verses. Do you know what David does in these verses? He makes it clear that the Lord is not impressed with the rebellion of the nations. As wicked men, look at it, as wicked men are boldly shaking their fists to the heavens and rebuking and cursing the Creator, the one who sits on the throne in heaven looks down on the earth and he laughs at their plotting and their schemes. And friends, this laughter is not a laughter of hilarity. It is a laughter of divine derision, mockery, and contempt. The psalmist is showing us that evil authorities may strut around with delusions of control, but the sovereign God of the universe is not wringing his hands in heaven on his throne, wondering how in the world he's going to defeat him and uphold his honor. God in heaven is sitting on his throne, maintaining his authority, whether the world ever accepts it or not. This psalm teaches us that his word stands firm in spite of the nation's hatred, in spite of their so-called gathered strength, in spite of their so-called wisdom, in spite of their plotting, and in spite of their rage. The nations rage and plot, and God the Father sits calmly on his throne, and he looks down and he laughs at what he sees. The psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 37 and verse 13, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. Listen to what he says next. Why? For he sees his day coming. Do you know why he laughs? Because God wrote the story, and he knows the ending. So no matter what sinful man conceives, the Lord remains the unrivaled sovereign ruler of the universe. No matter, listen to your pastor this morning, no matter what law is passed by a legislature, God's law is still in force. No matter what a judge issues, God's judgments are still sure and secure and true. And he laughs at sinful man's feeble attempts to thwart his eternal purposes. And that's why William Varner in his book, Awake, O Harp, said, When the noise from the world frightens you, turn to the Lord and let him take over. 
Some of you would be in a lot better shape this morning if you'd turn your TV off and open your Bible. And drown out the noise of the world and fill it with the noise of God. The things of his kingdom. You'll notice in verse 5, David says that the Lord's laughter. Look, there's a transition that takes place in the verse. Don't miss it. It'll turn to wrath. And he'll speak to the rebellious nations and terrify them in his fury. Warren Wiersbe said, today God is speaking to the nations in his grace and he's calling them to trust his son. But the day will come when God will speak to them in his wrath and send terrible judgment to the world. And if people will not accept God's judgment of sin at the cross and trust Christ, they will have to accept God's judgment of their sin and themselves. He's right. One day God's laughter will stop and his judgment will begin through his holy, righteous wrath. And you'll notice in verse 6 that God the Father issues a decree in response to man's insane attempts to overturn God's eternal plans. The Lord thunders from heaven. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This confident statement expresses God the Father's unrelenting resolution and promise to enthrone his very son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as king on Mount Zion. A reference to the city of Jerusalem. And notice how it's described in the psalm. It's God's holy hill. And he will rule and reign from that hill over all of the nations. It speaks to a future time when the Lord Jesus Christ will wage war against this rebellion. And he will defeat it once and for all. Christopher Ash said, we're not simply expected to understand what this rebuke means. We are meant to feel a sense of visceral terror when we hear it. Do you hear that, friends? Oh, don't casually read this verse. If you can casually read verse number 6 and verse number 5, you do not properly understand the wrath of God. The Bible says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. So Ash says we're meant to feel this terror. We're meant to sense this picture of trepidation in verses 5 and 6. He goes on, he says, The God who made the world and in whose hands is our very breath is furiously angry at our rebellion. No, he says, I have made a decision. I have installed with no appeal, no second thoughts, no chance of reversal, my king. And there's nothing you can do about it. Do you see this beautiful picture, friends? This king is like no other king. This is not a king like the kings of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. This is a king who will usher in a sovereign rule over the world. A rule of righteousness. A rule of peace. A rule of wholeness and prosperity. Can't you see it? Can't you see it, friend? The promise that awaits you in Christ 
Don't you see this morning, Christian, that these verses are reminding you to look beyond and listen above the noise of the nations and their rantings and to find the firm and assuring voice of the living God found in his word? Can't you see that's what these verses are calling you to? That the psalmist is telling you this morning, keep your eyes there. It'll keep you sane in a world that is crumbling around you. You know what I thought about as I was writing this sermon? In particular, this section of turning your eyes to Christ and above the noise and the chatter of the world. I was thinking about my noise-canceling headphones. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the noise-canceling headphones in my house are a blessing and a curse. Here's the blessing. My house is often busy and noisy, and I don't have an office there, so my office becomes the dining room table, which is right beside the kitchen. And so I'll be in there working and studying, and there's... Uh, lots of noise around and so I put those noise canceling headphones in and turn my music on and worship and write and work and it's a blessing it's a beautiful thing until it becomes a curse and it becomes a curse when I've been gone all week and it's Saturday and I'm putting finishing touches on the sermon and my wife hasn't seen me for a bit and wants to talk to me and doesn't know I have the noise-canceling headphones in and begins a conversation from the kitchen. Trouble with a capital T, right? But do you know what they do? They tune out all the other noise. So you can hear the one noise that makes all the difference when you're studying and writing a sermon. Could you just see this morning, friends? Can you just use your sanctified imagination that this is your noise-canceling headphones? And that when the world and its craziness seems to defeat you and depress you and steal your joy and hope, that, that should be your instant trigger to get your noise-canceling headphones out and to put them on and rise above all that and hear the voice of God through His Word that makes all the difference. Well, we not only see the rebellion against God and the response of God the Father in verses 7 through 9, we also see the reign of God the Son. The Bible says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This third stanza introduces us to another speaker. In these verses, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, announces the decree that his Father gave him in the councils of heaven. And the psalmist is teaching us through this voice that all that God the Father has planned and purposed in eternity past, God the Son will proclaim and perform. And in this council of eternity, the Father spoke to the Son. Look at what the text says. And he said to him, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. 
This verse does not suggest that Jesus Christ is a created being. This verse is pointing to his incarnation where he left the glory and the splendor and the majesty of heaven and came to dwell on earth among us. And it also points to and references his death, his burial, and his resurrection as proof that he is the Son of God and that he is the one who has the right to be king over all the earth. And in verse 8, Christ says that because of his submission to the Father's will, God will give him a great legacy. He will give him a vast inheritance comprised of the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. And what he is teaching us through this statement is that from eternity past, God the Father has set apart a people for himself. And the Bible says it's people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And he has given these people to his son as a heritage, as an inheritance. And the son, in obedience and humility, left the glories of heaven. He came to earth. He lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. He died on an old rugged cross for your sins and my sins and for the sins of the world. He was buried in a tomb. He rose from the grave victorious over sin, death, hell, and Satan. And he ransomed and redeemed a people for himself. The same people that God the Father gave him in eternity past. And those people are his heritage. And he is building that heritage even today, even this very moment. And there's coming a time when that heritage will be complete and the Lord Jesus Christ will return and rule and reign. The Father gave him this inheritance, but the Son purchased it through his own blood. And I'll remind you this morning as we think about these verses that Jesus did not take a shortcut to his inheritance. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, Satan came to him and he tempted him and he told him, Jesus, you can have all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus refused to worship the devil. And he worshiped God and he obeyed him and he purchased his own inheritance through the cross. And notice verse 9. Not only will he have this heritage, he will reign supreme over his enemies. And he's described in verse 9 as a shepherd with an iron rod when he comes to judge the world and its hatred towards him and its opposition towards him. He will take his rod of iron and he will smash the nations of the world and their rebellion like clay pots. He will utterly destroy them. These verses teach us that from ancient days to the present, it's clear that broken human beings are incapable of providing all we hope for in a leader. Only a divine ruler can provide the safety and the security we so desperately need and conquer every evil power that threatens us. And I want to remind you this morning, dear friends, that King Jesus is that ruler. He is the one that is above all other kings. He is the one that succeeded where every Israelite king failed. He is the one who succeeded where every modern leader has failed. King Jesus will never fail, and his rule will never end. 
And so despite all the things that discourage you, despite all of the things that depress you, despite all of the trials and temptations and testings that surround you, Jesus Christ is king. And you can find your hope and your trust and your security in him. So you should take heart. You are not left without a sovereign. You are not left without a leader. You are not left without a king, a king that your heart needs. And so I must ask you this morning, have you allowed the evil in the world, the tragedies of the world, the difficulties of the world, the disappointments of life to cause you to lose heart? Are you discouraged this morning? Have you allowed the current climate and unrest in the world, listen, to lead you to trust more in your earthly citizenship, to lead you to trust more into your patriotism, to lead you to trust more in your nationalism, then you've allowed it to trust in your king. You have to answer that question. Jesus Christ has no rival. He is the king that your heart needs. Every earthly president will fail you. Jesus Christ will never fail you. And if you're trusting more in your earthly citizenship and in an earthly ruler than you are in your heavenly citizenship and your promise for the future of streets of gold and peace with Christ for all eternity, your trust is in the wrong place. It's on sifting sand and it'll never last. Well, that brings us to number four. And in verses 10 through 12, I want you to see the reasoning of the Spirit of God. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And there's one final voice in this psalm speaking to the nations. Do you know what it is? It's the gentle voice of the Spirit of God entreating through the psalmist, calling for the kings and the rulers of the earth to be wise and to examine themselves in light of God's decree. Look at how he begins in verse 10. Now, therefore, this is not a quick emotional response. It is a logical conclusion to the psalm. Now, therefore... Reader of Psalm 2, in light of everything that you've read and understood in verses 1 through 9, this is how you respond to what you've read. You wake up and you come to your senses. Now you'll notice in verses 10 to 12, the psalmist gives five commands of the leaders of the nations. Do you see it? Beginning in verse 10. He tells them to be wise. He tells them to be warned. He tells them to serve the Lord. He tells them to rejoice, and he tells them to kiss the Son. You can take these five commands, and you can put them in two categories, and here they are. Wise up and worship. Wise up and worship God. And he tells them, 
in your rebellion and in your revolt against God, you need to wise up, you need to wake up and realize what your actions are going to lead to and you need to cease from your war with heaven. And through the psalmist, listen, the Spirit of God is inviting rebels everywhere, even in this room this morning, to repent and submit to the Son of God and to be blessed. Because listen to me, friends, the antidote for any rebellion is always the same. It's repentance. It's turning away from your rebellion. It's turning away from your revolt. It's turning away from your sin. And it's turning to Christ. The antidote to rebellion is always repentance. So wise up and pay attention and see where your consequences of your actions will lead. That's what he's saying. It's a good word. You'll notice also there's a warning. If they refuse to wise up and consider their ways, look at the end of verse 12. What happens? They'll forfeit the blessing of God and they'll experience God's anger and they'll perish in the way, just like the wicked of Psalm 1. This is a sober and urgent warning. Repent of your pride. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rebellion. Or you will perish. But they not only need to wise up, the psalmist says they need to worship. Look at what he says in these verses. They must serve the Lord with fear. It means they must be drawn to Christ in love and adoration and amazement because of his power and his glory and all the things that he has done for us. And that glory demands a holy reverence, a holy fear. It's a reminder not to approach the God of the universe too casually. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a king. And he deserves to be revered. Furthermore, he says they must rejoice with trembling. They rejoice in this king and his rule and his leadership over their life. But they do it with a holy reverence and trembling. Realizing that he is God and they are not. And then notice the next one. Finally, they must kiss the son you know what that was? It was a picture of humble submission to a sovereign. That you would bend down and kiss his foot. Or you would kiss him on the cheek as a greeting. It's an act of humility and an act of submission. It's an act that the world that is hostile against God knows nothing about. It's an act that sinners who are in rebellion against God know nothing about. How in the world, dear friend, can you see a picture of this king and it not cause you to humble yourself before him? It's because you're worshiping a God of your own imagination instead of the God of the Bible. That's why. So when you understand the God of the Bible, it brings you to humility. This kiss of the son, listen. It's a picture of complete surrender to Christ. That you're giving him everything. You're giving him your life. You're giving him your future. You're giving him your family. You're surrendering your will to him. You're coming to him with open hands and open arms and saying, You are king. I am not. I am here to serve you. I am here to fear you. I am here to revere you. I am here to worship you. You are my king. Complete another surrender. And do you know what it is? It's the only place 
that you will find security in this life. It's the only place. Lasting security. Look at the text. It comes from taking refuge in God. That is the only place you will have security in this world. And I want you to hear me this morning, friends. Because I know there's some in rebellion and in distance against God. I know there's some in here that don't know Christ as their Savior. There is no refuge from God. There is no place you can go to hide from Him. He knows everything and He sees everything. But there is a refuge in Him. There is a refuge in Him. A place of security. The $10 gasoline can't touch. A place of security, that utter rebellion that cracks the foundations of our civilization and we no longer see what a normal family looks like. There's a refuge that that can't touch. There is a refuge that can't be touched by the condemnation of sin when you're free in Christ. It's a refuge in God. And so I want to say to you this morning, believer, the message of this psalm is one of comfort. It's one of hope. It's one of encouragement. The antagonism of the world to God and his people will not end. But the outcome is not in question, even though it may seem to you that it is. Therefore, Christian, be strengthened in your faith and in your resolve to believe and obey God's word and to live for God and his kingdom no matter what the cost to the very end. Listen to me, church. It may cost some of you your job to live for God. Give it up anyway. He's worth more than temporary money can give you. It may cost you your friends. Give it up anyway. He's worthy of it. It may cost you your family. Christ is even greater than your family. Don't give in. Don't get discouraged. Don't make it to the finish line unfaithful. Sprint across the tape in your faithfulness to God. No matter what the cost. God set his king on Zion. It's a high and holy and glorious hill. And one day that king is going to pick up his rod of iron and he's going to break this wicked, hostile world into pieces of pottery for his namesake, for his glory, and for his eternal purposes. And there is not one thing this world can do about it. So, church, Christian, be encouraged today. Now, amen. Now, Unbeliever, listen to this old-fashioned pastor's heart. The message of Psalm 2 is a sober, dire warning. God, through his word and through his spirit, this very moment, 
is calling you to wake up. It's calling you to wise up. And it is calling you to kiss the Son of God and bow before him in repentance and humility for the forgiveness of your sins and for the salvation of your soul while there's still time. Because there's coming a day when time will end and eternity will begin. And then it'll be too late. Listen to me, unbeliever. Listen to me, those without Christ. Listen to my pleading this morning. It is not by accident that you're in this room at this very moment for this very sermon. God doesn't do accidents. Do you know what he does? Divine appointments. You're here by divine appointment to be confronted by this text so that your eyes would be opened and you'd see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and you would kiss him and bow before him in worship and honor and obedience. And I want you to understand this morning, unbeliever, the choice is clear. You can bend and bow now or you can be broken and crushed later. One way or another, you will bow. Psalm 2 reminds us that no matter how much the nations rage, no matter how much they rebel, no matter how much they resist God's kingdom, the Lord has firmly established his son over all. And he invites everyone everywhere to come and embrace him now before it's too late and his wrath is unleashed on the world. Kiss the sun. Let's pray. Father.